John 17, we'll be considering uh, verse uh, 11, 12, and 13 today. John chapter 17, beginning at verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Well, let us ask God to bless his word. Our Father, we ask that your words would be a blessing to us, for if we were to speak our own words, our own wisdom, how could we say anything good? But with your words and your wisdom from above, from the lips of Christ himself no less, we ask that we will be blessed. We ask this for the sake of your Son, who is glorified in us. Amen. Maybe some of you are old enough or have experienced enough in your life to have uh, been somewhere and eagerly waited to uh, go home, that you really want to get home. And uh, I, uh, I'm experiencing that already uh, because uh, in the next week or so, my family's going to be scattered to the corners of the earth uh, and I suggested to my wife, uh, Katie, we are shipping to my wife's family in Prince Edward Island on Air Miles, and uh, paying the taxes, though, not nice. Uh, and the twins are going to stay with the Lafleur family, uh, fine family. Don't know why they would offer to have the twins, but uh, I said to Barb, let the twins stay home alone. They're gonna, they turn 13 today, actually. Uh, if you have a toonie in your pocket, uh, I want to pass it on, uh, speak to me after. Uh, and she wasn't happy with the idea of the twins staying home alone. So they're going to the Lafleurs and then to Camp Quanos. And Josh is going to Sweden on Friday and then Denmark. And naturally, I looked at those three options and chose that I would follow Josh to Denmark and Sweden with Barb. For our 20th anniversary, good reason, right? You always need an excuse. Otherwise, people will say, oh, why you fancy holidays? Uh, 20th anniversary. Is that a good enough reason? Thank you. Uh, but you see, there's a problem. There's a problem. You, you scatter Matthew and Thomas off, Katie, Josh, and I'm already thinking about us all getting back in one piece and just sitting in the lounge together and saying, okay, we're back. And I've had terrible thoughts like, well, I need to do my will and get things sorted out and, you know, give my theological books to AJ or something if uh, he wants them and my bikes to this person and that person. I won't have time for it this week. So just it's a free for all if uh, I don't come back. But you get this anxiety because you do like the comfort and security of just being at home. I'm starting to appreciate those 
homebodies, those people who always used to talk about how they like to just be at home. I never understood that, but now I'm getting older. I think, ah, it's nice to just be at home. And actually, there's a lot of truth to that, even in what we have just read, because if you look at the first five verses, the theme is basically fixed upon Christ's glory, but also wanting the glory with which he had with the Father before the world began. And after that, from verses 6 to 10, there's the idea of this glory continuing where the emphasis is upon the Father giving Christ to give, to give, to give. And there's a reception of all these blessings. But as you get to verses 11 to 13, one of the themes that really struck me was that Christ has a holy excitement, an anticipation of wanting to be with His Father. And I think that if you were to ask what is the greatest blessing that Christ could receive on earth as the God-man, as the one who received all these things from the Father, it seems to me the greatest blessing He could receive on earth was to return home to be with His Father, to be on the throne, to be at the center of all worship and praise. While he was on earth, he was away from the Father. And so it is not for no reason that he says in two different places here, verse 11 and verse 13, I am coming to you. And you mustn't just read those as words. You have to understand what is going on here when he emphasizes a point again and again. I am coming to you. Now notice where we get that. In verse 11, he says, I am no longer in the world. This is a Hebrew way of speaking about something that is an established fact. It is actually about to happen with his ascension after his death and resurrection. And so he is saying it as an established fact. I am no longer in the world in the sense that I'm going to be leaving this world. As a pilgrim and stranger in this world, like we are, Jesus Christ is returning to his Father. But they are in the world. So Jesus is identifying a fundamental problem between him and his followers. He is going to be in glory. They are not going to be in glory. He is going to be with his Father. They are not going to be with his Father. So what does he do? Well, he begins his prayer of intercession here. He says, I am coming to you. In all that he is about to experience in his rejection, in the denial of Christ by Peter, in the beating, in the failure to have the strength to carry the cross, in going to Golgotha, in being mocked and ridiculed and crying out in darkness, he could always say, I know where I am going. I am going to my Father. I am coming to you. So because he's coming to the Father, what does he do? Well, he fixes his thoughts upon his people who will remain on earth. Holy Father. Do you know what's interesting about those two words? They're the only two words that appear in all of God's Word right here. Holy Father. The reverence and yet the intimacy with which he addresses his Father. Holy Father. There's that wonderful passage in Hebrews where we're told in the days of His flesh, He cried out with loud tears and He was heard. Why? Because of His reverence. Holy Father. 
The eternal Son of God, who had such intimacy with His Father, nevertheless refers to Him as Holy Father. Keep them in your name. And to keep them in your name is a wonderful turn of phrase. It goes back to the Old Testament, obviously, where the name of the Lord is a strong tower to those who trust in Him. But when he says, keep them in your name, there's sort of two ideas that are two sides of the same coin. There's the idea that they are going to be faithful to the Father. So when he prays this, keep them in your name, he's saying, keep them in their faithfulness to who you are. But on the other hand, while there is the perseverance of God's people on earth, there is the preservation of God's people from heaven. Jesus is praying for them. Preserve them. Protect them. Keep them in your name. Keep them faithful to who you are. And to be faithful to the name of God is to be faithful on His terms. Not just keep them faithful, but keep them faithful as God would have them to be faithful. And this name is such a powerful name that it is a name that not only preserves God's people, it is a name that God is pleased to place upon Christ Himself. Remember in Philippians 2, His reward, that He has been given the name that is above every name. The name of Yahweh, the great I Am. I will be who I once was. That name is given to Christ. It is the name of the Father. And it is the name that protects you. There is no greater name that can protect you than the name of Yahweh. Keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Now they're being preserved by Christ. Once saved by Christ through His death and resurrection, always saved by Christ through His intercession. That's more biblical. Once saved, always saved. Ah, that's not for us Presbyterians. Once saved by His death and resurrection, always saved by His intercession. When Christ prays this prayer, keep them in your name. If your name is uttered even once to the Father, you are as good as glorified. Keep them in your name. Will the Father reject such a request from His Son? And the answer is no. But what does that lead to on earth? Well, notice it leads to unity. That they may be one even as we are one. Now, do you know that whether you are in the church or outside of the church, there is a great deal of discussion on the disunity among Christians? But I want to point you to something that I emphasized last week. And if you weren't here, I emphasized the fact that in verse 6, Jesus said of His disciples that they have kept your word. And I pointed out how this was a startling expression because in many respects, He could have said they have not kept your word. Is that not a fair way to look at it in light of Peter's denial, in light of the disciples abandoning Christ in his time of need, in light of them falling asleep while he was praying? Could he not have said they have not kept your word? And yet he says the opposite. They have kept your word because he looks upon us graciously in our weakness. And even the small sparks of obedience he is pleased to count as real obedience. And then in verse 10, he says, I am glorified in them. Not, I am not glorified in these scoundrels, but I am glorified in these people. 
Now, what does that have to do with what I'm trying to say here? Christ looks upon the church warts and all and is nevertheless pleased to say they are one even as we are one. That He sees unity here. Do you know what one of the best things about being a Presbyterian is? Some of you still not Presbyterians. You sit there in your unbelief and your rebellion. May I just convince you? All of the people who became members today, I don't even know if they're Baptists. I don't even know if they're Pentecostals. I don't know what their eschatology is. Cassandra didn't say, well, actually, I'd like to tell you about my whole analysis of the book of Daniel according to the premillennial scheme of things. And if you would give me six hours, I would like to go over this with you. I don't know. And it's not that I'm not interested, and it's not that these things aren't important, but when someone wants to be a member of Christ's church, there is something that is a non-negotiable. And that is simply that they recognize they are a sinner and a great sinner, but they also need a great Savior. And that they put their faith in that Savior. If you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus has been raised from the dead, you will be saved. That's the unity upon which the church is built. And when you look at it that way, there's a great deal of unity. If you want to emphasize every little theological disagreement, you could say, oh, no unity here, no unity there. But the truth of the matter is, when it comes to all those Christ has prayed for here, there is an unbreakable unity because of our union with Him. The fact that the same Savior died for the same sinners, raised for the same sinners, the same Holy Spirit in the same sinners, who makes them to be like Himself. And that is an undisputable fact. Emphasize unity. Are other theological issues not important? Of course they are. You could never accuse us of not caring about theology, but at the same time, we also have a doctrine in this church whereby if you are a Christian, you belong to the church of Jesus Christ. And what is it to be a Christian? It is to own your sin, but own the Savior even more that they may be one even as we are one. So while I was with them, Christ says in verse 12, I kept them in your name. He is praying for the Father to keep them, but He is also praying that the Father would do the very thing that Christ did. Keep them. Keep them. Keep them. The name that you have given Me. And I have guarded them. And I love that. I have guarded them. I have protected them. I have kept them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Now this is a very sobering statement for the very simple reason that you do not often, in fact, it may be one or two references according to my understanding of the Scripture speaking about the final destination of somebody who is not going to heaven. There are plenty of references where people go to be with the Lord, but not in terms of their eternal destiny in the negative. That is, in terms of hell. It's exceedingly rare. And there's very good reason for that. But here, 
Jesus is not saying that at one time Judas was given to him as a gift by the Father, that he really truly believed, that he possessed the Holy Spirit, that he was godly, but then somehow he just got lost in a bit of misfortune. The reason that Judas was lost is because Judas was never actually given to Christ, and in fact he was the son of destruction or the son of perdition. And it's a very sobering thing to read that about any human being. But there's something else about this, because if you just read this, you might glance over these words at the end of verse 12, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Where does that come from? Where would you actually go in the Old Testament to see that Judas would be the one who is lost because he is the son of perdition? It's not actually immediately obvious, is it? You could go to Psalm 41 and you would look at verse 9 and you would probably make a parallel as you should between David and Ahithophel and Jesus and Judas. And that is the closest that I can come to understanding that the Scriptures may be fulfilled. In other words, in the life of David, he was betrayed by his trusted counselor. And it would not only be for the sake of David to learn to trust and grow in God, but it would be for the sake of Jesus Christ who would likewise be, trust by, be betrayed by His trusted counselor. There's actually a number of parallels. If you look at the parallels in Second Samuel and in John's Gospel, for example, you'll see that both David and Jesus both cross the Kidron when the betrayal takes place. You can see that in John chapter 18, verse 1. But not only do they both cross the Kidron, both Ahithophel and Judas plan to do the deed, the betrayal at nighttime. And there's an emphasis upon that point. What's interesting is that Ahithophel and Judas both do the same thing after they have betrayed. They both hang themselves. The same way of dying. And both David and Jesus pray for deliverance upon the Mount of Olives. And what's also interesting is there's another reference to both David and Jesus that it would be better for the death of one man that the rest of the people would be saved. In other words, look at the delicate way in which the Scriptures say this is fulfilled. It's through an actual real-life circumstance involving Ahithophel, once a trusted counselor of David who betrays him, and it's down to the minutest details of everything that's unfolded according to God's plan. And that's why he says that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But then right after Christ has spoken of something so agonizing and I think sad, he prays for his disciples to be joyful in verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. While he is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, Jesus himself was nevertheless a man of joy because he was acquainted with God. And you must remember that that despite all of the sorrows that he experienced, he was always a joyful man. He was never not joyful because he was never not in awareness of all that God had promised him. He was never not in possession of the Spirit, which means he had the fruit of the Spirit, which means he had joy. 
And so, Jesus will speak about joy constantly, even to His disciples. Earlier on in in John's Gospel, He said, until now you have asked nothing in My name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be what? That your joy may be full. He wants His disciples to be filled with joy in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. Paul says to the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Is that a command that Christ would have had to have obeyed? Rejoice in the Lord always? Absolutely. Any command that is placed upon us was first placed upon Christ. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. That your joy may be full. Thomas Watson says, religion is no melancholy thing. It brings joy. There's something wrong with you as a Christian if you do not have a settled joy in your soul because you know where you have come from and you know where you are going and you know what has been promised to you. There is no excuse for not having joy. It is a command to be joyful. Now I want to return to this idea that I spoke of at the beginning when Christ said, I am coming to you. You see, if you go back to the reading earlier from Hebrews chapter 9 and you look at the last verse in that chapter, what is it about? It is about those who have longed for the appearing of Jesus Christ. Jesus longed to be with His Father And Christians long to be with Christ and their Father. The point is is that if you are a true Christian, and I pray that you are, you must not only think about where you have come from, but where you are going. This would have filled Christ with unspeakable joy. He is going to His Father. He's not just saying, I'm coming to you now, Father. There's a sense in which if I could give you the the sort of gift of sanctified imagination, if we were to look at the joy in Christ's heart as He uttered these words, I am coming to you, verse 11. I am coming to you, verse 13. It's as though an explosion of joy takes place even in the solemnity of this prayer. Even in the reverence of this prayer. I am coming to you. And you see, you need to be in a difficult situation to want to be in a place of peace and serenity. I'll never forget my first year at university. I became a Christian my first year at university because I became so miserable. I thought I had it all. Going to play soccer, scholarship. thought, oh, this will be perfect. You know, I'm doing the thing I always wanted to do. Parties before I went and celebration and go off and... It wasn't long before I became quite miserable away from home. It's very difficult going away from home. The football player said the coaches stopped recruiting athletes from California because they always wanted to go back home. And I thought, well, yeah, Wisconsin, California. Now I think they probably have more success getting players out of California. But I digress. And I was so miserable that while I was on a scholarship Uh, your daily pocket money wasn't covered. And I remember my dad saying to my guidance counselor who had to look after me, and every athlete had someone who looked after them, said, oh, it's about $5 a day should, you know, be, they get all their meals covered, all that, but you get $5 a day. And I got so miserable, I'd stop spending the $5 a day because I wanted to save up 
to get a plane ticket home for Christmas because I knew my dad wasn't going to give me money for a plane ticket home. I even started a business in the dorm training out of shape international students for money. And I would take them on runs. There was a guy from Turkey, Mehmet, and I'd take him for runs and I'd, I'd get paid 10 bucks for taking him on a run and training him because I just wanted to get home. I was so miserable, I wanted to get home. Life was difficult. I'll never forget, you know, getting on that plane and being so happy to get home. And you see, for a Christian, if you don't have any hope or anticipation of wanting to say these words, I am coming to you, then maybe you are just a little bit too comfortable in this world, a little too friendly with this world. There's much good in this world. There are many blessings in this world. But they never get to the point where a Christian should ever be able to say, I would like to stay here forever. I am coming to you are the words of someone who is fighting the good fight. I am coming to you are the words of someone who is not of this world, but is in this world. I am coming to you are the words of someone who I think as a Christian understands that their biggest enemy on earth is indwelling sin. And they want to be free of that. I am coming to you. But I also want you to notice something else. That Jesus emphasizes how much He preserves His people. I have kept them. I have protected them. I have guarded them. And one of the things that I think we're pretty good at as Christians is thanking God for all of the forgiveness we receive because of sins committed. You look at all the sins you've committed and you say, thank you, Lord, that you forgive me for all of my sins. And we do prayers of confession and we say, thank you, Lord, for forgiving us of our sins. But one thing we don't meditate upon enough is how much we have been preserved by Christ who is in heaven. How many sins we have been kept from. Can you imagine if Christ had not prayed this prayer? That if all you got from Christ was mere forgiveness of sins, you would have a catalog of sins every day that would shock you and almost horrify you that you'd die on the spot. Little Bobby comes home from school and how was school today? Oh well, I got in a fight, called my teacher ugly, stole Johnny's lunch for the fifth day in a row, and then I did this, that, and the other. And then a husband would come home. And how was work? Well, I committed adultery and I killed my boss. And your wife says, oh, well, I did the same. I committed adultery and then I set the garage on fire because I'm tired of your stuff. And you think, oh, well, this is crazy. But the truth of the matter is, if Christ didn't say preserve them, if He didn't say protect them in your name, if He didn't pray for you to be faithful, you would be horrified at the sins that you would commit each day. You should not only be thankful to God for the forgiveness of your sins, but what He has preserved you from doing. What He has preserved you from doing. It's not because of your innate holiness. It is because Christ has prayed for you that you are sitting here and you are not locked away in jail forever. And so we have two great blessings. One that we can say, I 
I'm coming to you. And two, that we can say, you have preserved me from going somewhere else. And that's Christianity. That's the unity we speak of. That everyone sitting here should be able to say at least that. I am coming to you in the name of Jesus Christ. And I have been preserved from going somewhere else in the name of the devil. And that is the sum and substance of our Christian faith. And that is the reason we are one, even as God the Father and God the Son are one. Let us pray. Oh Lord, thank You for Your words and thank You for Your promises. And when we think of where we are going and where we have come from, as well as what we have been preserved from, we have joy. But we pray our joy may be full that we may not have the joy of the world, but we may have the joy that filled Christ's heart overflow into our own hearts. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.